Michelle Constant on SAFM. We're talking to Joanne Joseph. She's the author of a book called Children of Sugarcane. It's published by Jonathan Ball. And it is a fascinating read about indentured labor uh, and Indians who came to South Africa to work on the sugarcane farms and in the fields. Joanne, you mentioned your mother, your grandmother, her journey. And I wonder if you could briefly just explain what your grandmother's journey was and then talk us through the overarching narrative of children of sugarcane for our listeners. So, um, she, she was my very great-grandmother, actually, Michelle, yeah. and um, her name was Avalachmi Velanaiken. She came from a village called Salem in India, which yeah. is in the south of India, uh, where it's, it's close to where uh, Chennai is now. Yes. Um, and, and she would have come from, and I say she would have, because it was very difficult to establish the exact reasons for her leaving India. Yeah. But she would have come from an area that was plagued by poverty, by famine, uh, drought at that time. There had been several of those uh, catastrophic mm, environmental absolutely. events um, at, at, around that time. And the British had, of course, taken away their ability to subsistence farm because they had, had um, you know, in, impressed upon them the need to kind of participate in this British commercial agricultural project by farming the sorts of things that they required for, for Britain. So, you know, they, they, they caused a huge upset in that ecosystem. And essentially, it's very likely that she and the younger siblings were prompted by this and very, very possibly the deaths of their parents as well to get on a ship to South Africa, what was then the colony of Natal. And, and there's very little that I know of her. I and mean, we've got a very weak oral history uh, mm. on that side of the family. And it's possibly, possibly because of the intergenerational trauma, the shame around it. Um, you know the the, um, the the kind of uh, oral history that that is just sloughed away with mm. every kind of generation. So what what happened in my great grandmother's case was, you know, we had a little picture of her. Uh, we knew her first name, and that was about it. Sure. Um, the rest came from the archive. I discovered that she was uh, around the age of 21, 22 when she came to South Africa. She sailed with her her younger siblings, three of them. One of them, the brother, was sent back a year later as an invalid. So presumably he'd been injured yeah. while working here and, and could no longer be kept here. Um, and, and, and she, on the other hand, she was indentured on the Natal government railways, sure. which was the second largest employer at the time and, and was a very brutal environment for women uh, to, to work in. So she, she somehow survived that. Um, she then reappears in the archives several years later as a much older woman. And there is a beautiful picture of her where she's seated and she's got an older sister standing next to her and a young boy who might be her son. Um, and, and she's now a, a, is probably a woman in her, in her late 50s, early 60s or so. And, and she sits there with what I read as a kind of sense of pride because she's accomplished quite a lot. She's survived indenture. She has educated her children. She has run a Methodist mission from her home for 30 years. She's been quite wow. brave and yeah. married across the color line. You know, yeah. she married British Clark. And, and so, you know, she, I was fascinated by that um, because, of course, when one first approaches indenture, um, you, you think about it as kind of victimhood. And I, I was quite fascinated by the agency that Absolutely. someone like my grandmother had, right? Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot to be said for that, that there are oppressive systems which crush people or try to crush them. Yeah. But 
they seem to find their own mechanisms to survive and to thrive and be happy um, and, and, and to, to lay the, the foundations for incremental success over the coming generations, which I think she quite successfully did. And that was why in the novel, I decided to create a character. She's a very young girl, actually, for all intents and purposes. She's 14 years old. Um, she, she finds herself in a situation where she's trying to escape an arranged marriage. And she decides that the only option she mm. has is to get onto a, a ship that is heading for the colony of Natal. And, of course, when she gets here, she realizes the horror of what she's, she's brought into. Mm. But there is always that, that level of agency. Where she, in, in, at several times in the novel, she makes choices despite the, the difficulties kind of pressing down on her. Um, and, and really, it's a story of hardship. It's a story of toil and ardor in, in the sugarcane field. But it's also a story of friendship and yes. joy and, 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 and learning from one's mistakes and the kind of secrets we keep in families yes. that can, can undo us yeah. if, if we don't face them. I love that idea of secrets. It's something uh, I'm always intrigued with is how we look at secrets in families. And in fact, we were mm-hmm. talking to... Um, Someone about that last week, actually, around, it was around mental health and in families and how they often keep those secrets. But, you know, your character, Shanti, who is this young girl, she lies about her age in order to get on the ship. And this idea of agency and choice, agency and choice, which is based on on other lies. I mean, she is told that, you know, that she's going to literally, uh, quote unquote, Nirvana, and that's where she mm. will go. And then, of course, when she finally gets onto the ship, she realizes, and even before she gets onto the ship, she realizes that the narrative that she's been told of what this journey to uh, Port Natal will be is something so wildly different. And yet, as you say, it is about some kind of weird agency. Joanne, you know what really struck me was when I was reading was 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 the story of the the the, the, the ship crossing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just felt like. You, you know, I mean, it, it was the same as uh, anybody who was taken over as a slave to, to America. I mean, there was, there was no joy, or there was no ease of uh, crossing on that, on, that, on that ship ride. And I'm wondering where, what kind of information we, did you have to dig up to get all of that out? Um, that, that is a hugely important part of the book, Michelle, yeah. um, for all sorts of reasons, right? Obviously, because it's the big transition to the colony of Natal. Uh, on a more superficial level, but also because um, there's there's a heck of a lot in the archives and there's a lot that's being written right now yeah. about transoceanic crossings. Um, my my PhD supervisor, Isabel Hoffmeyer, has just brought out a book about hydrocolonialism. That's a kind of term that she has coined to remind us that colonization just doesn't only take place on land, but no. often... Water and the points around water yeah. are colonized in order to facilitate colonization. Yeah. Um, and, and that for me is just such an interesting, it's such an interesting space because yeah. it's water, it's not solid ground. And yet they're able to establish some kind of dominance over the water in order to, to colonize the land. Huh. Um, and, and, and that's also such a, it's a minimal space for the people who are traveling. Um, for, for example, I mean, they there was deep fear about the waters. If, if you look at the, the kind of terminology around the waters that the indentured used, 
They were often known as Kanapani, which is black waters, huh. or in Tamil, Pagla uh, Samundar, which means mad ocean. So there was a sense that this was a dangerous space in which uh, the, the ocean was longing for some kind of sacrifice in order to carry you over to the other side, and that people's lives would be lost along the way. And, and there would are, be a yeah. violation of all sorts of things. Um, so things like caste, things like uh, you know gender regulations that, that had been kept in check by society, all of these things um, you know, began, to, began to unravel on the ship. And that is really the point where the indentured laborers get their first taste of what life on the colonies is going to be like. The ship becomes a microcosm of of the land on which they will they will work. Yeah. Um, and 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 the, there is immense change uh, on the ship. There's immense transition. There's immense fear on the part of women who are both the prey of the ship's uh, captain and his crew, uh, as well as other Indian men on the ship. Yeah. So, so you, you know, the, the ship's journey is important because it establishes um, and, and provides a kind of portent for, for what is exactly is going to happen on the plantation. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested when you talk about the, the, the issue of caste and religion as well. Um, and that also struck me about, the, the, you know, this journey over the waters. And black waters is so appropriate given the losses that take place um, in that time that they are on the ship. But it is fascinating, this idea that um, a group of Indian people who come from different castes, there's the pariahs, the Brahmins, etc., and mm. yet those castes are, are, are thrown aside, as are the issues of religion. And we understand that with Shanti and her first uh, relationship with Mustafa, the, the um, cross-religious relationships that develop. And in so many ways... It talks to a completely different culture being built up of the Indian community. I, I love the way you put that, uh, Michelle, because that's exactly what it did. I mean, indenture was a horrific system, but like all horrific systems, it had unintended consequences, some of which were actually positive for the people who indentured. And, and, and religion is one of them, and caste is one of them. We know that caste is, is a very oppressive system. We know it's deeply hierarchical. We know it's discriminatory. And, and we know that, um, you know, people have been kept in check by caste for centuries. And there are still places in India where that, that has been culturally practiced. So it's, it still has its remnants today in, in society, even though, you know, one would think now that it's been outlawed, it's not heard of anymore. That's not the case at all. It's the case at all. It's, it's still being practiced along with colorism and all the kind of, of um, discriminatory practices that accompanied caste. Religion is also interesting because, I mean, in India, characters like Shanti could never have imagined engaging, falling in love with people across the religious line. Yeah, uh, it, it would have been completely unacceptable. And yet, such Intimate relationships are born from the point of departure for the ship. Uh, you know, all these, these engagements in the various depots that they are kept at, or the barracks in which they're kept before they actually get onto the ship. And those relationships are solidified on the ship. And then, of course, they're concretized once people land and engage each other in the barracks again. The, the British see them all as homogenous. Yeah, so they, they don't really 
difference between them in terms of religion, caste, and so forth, yeah. and, and language in particular. So, so it's you know just a soup of people as far as they're concerned, and and um, you know Indian people find at that time a very interesting way of using that to their advantage. Again, they find agency in that. They fall in love across caste. Mm. They fall in love across religion, um, and and they. They start celebrating each other's festivals in, in what is a practice that would have been completely bizarre in India. So Muharram, for example, yes. which is a, an, an Islamic festival, is one that all the Indians should practice. It becomes what is called by the British the Kuli Christmas, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and so it did that important work of integrating a society that needed to be integrated um, at a time when you, you were fighting the specter of colonization or simply just trying to survive it. Um, it, it created that important dynamic uh, kind of sisterhood, a brotherhood, a fraternity in the Indian community that was required in order to survive colonization. So the breaking down of all of those uh, those, those uh, silos, those barriers, was actually quite important to the survival of, of Indian people in South Africa. So what's also really, really um fascinating about this book and it may be um it, it it could be that i'm kind of like it's just the, the books i've been reading at the time and that kind of thing but i've been thinking a lot about um if we go you know recently i read um the pravin godan uh uh, uh, un, uh the, the the autobiography but it wasn't yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, what's yeah. it called joining the dots unauthorized yes, biography yeah. yeah and it really reminds me of someone who who hails from KwaZulu Natal just mm-hmm. how much is going on or has gone on in that that region culturally and how fascinating it is and what it has offered us as a country today the kind of culture that we've seen coming out of that region as well and all of that is linked to your story, Children of Sugarcane, this idea of people who traveled over, as you say, by choice to be part of an extraordinary, extraordinary history. And, and then when we look at, you know, what, wh- where we came out in the 50s and 60s and the kind of work that was happening then, and of course the very powerful activism that came out of the region as well from the Indian community in the 70s and 80s as well. And it feels like there's this wonderful, I mean, you talk about joining the dots, there's this wonderful thing of joining the dots and, and seeing the creation of a very powerful culture and the impact it's had on this country over so many years. It's, it, it, I mean, it must really strike you as something quite magnificent in a way. Um, you know, I, I look at it slightly ambivalently, uh, Michelle, because yeah. I think everything you've said is, is 100% correct. There is a rich kind of activism that grows out of the people who were subjugated. And, and I think that, that Indian people, um, you know, they found their power at some point. Um, at, if, if you look in particular at the women's protests yes. in the early 20th century, before indenture was abolished, yeah. you, you see such power in that. Um, you see such a, a rousing and a rallying of, of strength um, and, and, and communal, uh, communal fortitude around, uh, you know, withstanding indenture and saying, we, we want this, we demand that this be abolished. Yes. And I think Indian women in particular found a lot of power in that, as did Indian men. Um, and, and there must have been an element of that that, that weaved its way into a more modern struggle like apartheid. Yeah. 
um, because, as you correctly say, we have seen so many activists uh, in, involved in, in anti-apartheid, uh, in the anti-apartheid struggle um, over the decades. Um, but at the same time, um, I think colonization did, did the opposite. And I think it, it created a, a, a fractiousness between African indigenous people yes. and between the, the Indian settlers who came. And while you had activists in the community who felt that there was a common struggle and, and could find that commonality and, and activate their activism based on it, there, there were others who just never closed that gap. And there are still elements of that yeah. in the Indian community today and in the African community where there's deep suspicion. I think the July meeting is a good example of that, yeah. um, of this kind of resurgence of distrust that, that has run through several decades, and actually, let's say centuries, because we're talking about over 160 years here. Um, but, but I think what it is really useful to do is to go back to the starting point of this relationship exactly. between Indians and Africans and say, how did the British set it up? Um, and yeah. you've got this kind of triangulation of the British at the top and the Indians and Africans at the bottom, and, and this mediated gaze that exists, um, that, that tells Indian people how they ought to see African people and tells African people how they ought to see Indian people. And there you have the establishment of an archetype uh, that becomes the breeding ground for distrust over the centuries. It's it's so fascinating, and I'm I'm just I've just found that spot where you you write about it, and the character Shanti writes, the walk to Tongat was long. People came out to look at us along the way. I looked back at them, fascinated. The men and women had roughly the same complexions as us Tamils. The women being of similar height, but the men were far taller. Their hair grew in tight screws close to their heads. And then one of the labourers asked Rangasami who these people were. Quote, unquote, he says, just ignore them, he said gruffly. They are kafirs. The British found them here when they came here. You'll see, you'll see some of them on the plantation, but they are not your friends. And, it, you, I mean, you, you see that already so far back in your book as well. Joanne, it's it's uh, we're going to leave it there, but I want to say it's it's a really great read. Um, I, I learned so much from it, and so much that I hadn't thought about. And I want to say thank you for that. I think um, all South Africans should read it. I think it would be a great book to go into our um, schools as well as part of um, uh, learning history and and learning about South African literature as well. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Michelle, and thanks so much for your appreciation for the book and your deep reading of it. I really appreciate it. Joanne Joseph, she's the author of Children of Sugarcane, published by Jonathan Ball. Go out and get it. I swear it will uh, give you some great new insights into our country.